0: Hey, this is Ty Bennett. I just had a wonderful chat with Ryan. We talked about how to get more speeches and how to be better on stage. I hope you enjoy it. Take a listen. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Folland.
1: Welcome to another episode here on World of Speakers. Today we have Ty Bennett and he is not only a speaker, not only an author, he is also an entrepreneur and today we're going to learn about him, we're going to learn from him and then what he does in order to get more stage time for his speaking business. Ty, are you there and are you okay?
0: I am. (laughs) Thanks for having
1: me. Sometimes when I talk, I'm just not sure if people are there, but you are there. This is good news. And we're here for the next, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 hours to figure out how we can pull everything out of you. But before we do that, I want to start with getting to know you a little bit more. So imagine that you walked into a Sam Goody or your favorite record store. And instantly when you walked in every single piece of content and CD and disc and record player and whatever it is, is a story from your life. So you get to take the time to walk through the store and pick up the CD or the beta track or the the vinyl that has a story from your life that if that's the only thing I had, it was something that I could take and I could share it with somebody and be like, wow, you got to meet this guy, Ty. This one time, oh, wait, here, listen to this story.
0: <laughs> I love the reference to Sam Goody. I have probably not heard that name in many years, so I like it. <laughs> The story that came to mind when you were saying that, I've always been pretty ambitious, somebody who wants to go after things. And I was thinking about kind of where that came from for me. I think it was probably somewhat natural, but I remember being, I don't know, eight or nine years old. I was running in a race. It was a 5K, and it was kind of through this neighborhood where we lived. And I was battling for first place with this other kid, going back and forth. He's in the lead, then I'm in the lead. And the end of the race was this big, long hill. And as we were coming up to the hill, I was beat. I think I had kind of mentally started to give up because he was pulling ahead. I was struggling to keep going. And all the parents that were watching were kind of flanking this hill, right? And they were cheering us on. And just as this kid started to pull away and I kind of mentally said, I can't do it, all of a sudden I felt someone next to me and I look up and my dad is running next to me.
1: <sighs>
0: and my dad just, you know, being the dad that he is goes, you can catch this kid. And I probably said something dumb, like, I can't do it. I, I don't know. And and he goes, just do it. Give it everything you can. And it just energized me, right? And so I pushed up this hill and I ended up winning the race just barely. And that was fun. But what stood out to me about that day, and I think it served me so well, is we were my dad and I walked home from there. It was probably, I don't know, a mile to our house. And somewhere in that walk, actually, I can remember the exact spot. You know how there's certain pieces of memories that you can hold on to? Yeah. I know exactly where we we're standing. And he said, Ty, you will be successful in whatever you do because you've learned how to push through the pain. And I was like, huh. And every time, like for me, as an entrepreneur, as a speaker, as an author, as all the things that I've done, there's times that you want to quit. There's times that it gets painful. And that's the memory that pops in my head. And it just keeps me going. And it just causes me to push through. I think when some people might quit or when some people feel like it's too hard or it's not working, I think it's served me very well. Interesting. It's, it is interesting how you have those pinpoint moments
1: in the exact location. It's almost like a zoomed in on that memory. And I would assume that that has had a long-lasting impact on your life and on your speaking career. For sure. Now, is your dad full of these isms? Is he like the Yoda dad where he's always (laughs) got these momentous moments to share?
0: You know, I don't know. He's a great dad. I don't know that I would look at him that way like he's always had those one-liners, right? Right, right. that one really stood out. I mean, he was always there for things he traveled a lot. So it's interesting that he happened to be there on the day of that race, like that I remember that specifically. So yeah, I think whether it's by example or actual advice, he helped me a lot. Nate, do you have brothers and sisters? I have one brother, one
1: sister. Now, were you competitive with them as well? How did that work out in the household? If your dad's (laughs) jumping into the race to help you finish, I would assume that maybe there's more opportunity for competitiveness amongst the family.
0: Good question. Yeah. So my brother and I were always very competitive. He's he's like 20 months older than me, almost two years. And he and I actually started a business together in our twenties that we, we built about 25 million a year in revenue. So he's a very successful entrepreneur, but we had our struggles. And to be honest, there was some competitiveness in that process. I since have sold my half of the business to him and just speak full-time and write books and so that's actually helped our relationship quite a bit because of that competitiveness. And my sister is six years younger, so it wasn't the same competitive nature. She actually works for me now, and you know, so it's all kind of rounded itself out. For sure, over the years, that was a driver in our household.
1: And do you remember as a kid being somebody who's super introverted or super extroverted? Did you know that you would take to the stage? Was that even on your radar? Like if you look at your past, are there some early indications for others who were like, well, yeah, that maybe kind of was me too. Like, how did you associate your ability to speak as one of your sharpest tools? When did that come about? What side work were you on and who were you talking to
0: then? Mm-hmm. I definitely have been very extroverted my whole life. I like people. I get energy from people. I'd love to communicate. My mom would always tell a story. I don't remember this, but even when I was young, really young and had a speech impediment and you couldn't understand anything, I would just talk a mile a minute. And so I've never shied away from it. A couple of things from a stage perspective that I never really, like until you go back and you connect the dots, you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. When I was, I don't know, 12, 13, I got really into magic for whatever reason.
1: Well, for whatever reason, because it's super cool. Yeah, come on.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The way that my ambitious entrepreneur mind works it was like the minute i learned a trick i was like how can i charge someone to show them this trick and so i started doing shows i did some big shows i mean i built it up to where like i performed at the county fair and i did birthday parties and i did different things so that was probably like my first kind of stage time if you will and the magic did not stick that was not like a passion but then in high school, I was involved in some different leadership programs and things, and there was some speaking involved there. But then as we built our business, like I mentioned with my brother in my 20s, because I had a passion for speaking and because I was had a natural talent there, more and more that turned into my role. I would present a lot. I would do a lot of training and development. And so it became a functionality of what I did on a regular basis and did at a high level as we built our business. And And that's really where I went, okay, this is what I want to do.
1: Right, it's like that reflection. You're like, whoa, I tend to be doing a lot of this and it seems to be going well, so let's continue to double down, say? Yeah, exactly, yep. Now, in your sort of path of discovering that, you have these talents for speaking. Was it always tied to financial connectivity with your business? Or was this something that like, you just kind of wanted to do for, for fun or as an offshoot? Like, at what point did it become something that you were monetizing? Because I know a lot of speakers in their journey, they might realize that they have the talent, they might realize that they have the passion, but it still might be years until that connects with actual Dollars. So is it truly an offshoot of the business? Or like, you know, I'm curious how you developed it into an actual business?
0: It was an offshoot of the business. I mean, there's been times in my life that I've spoken a lot of things that had nothing to do with financial gain, like in our church and different things. I've I've taken opportunities to speak and participate in different things where I could present just because I enjoyed doing it and I wasn't afraid to do it. But as our business, within our business, I mean, obviously there was a benefit to that. But yeah, about 2006, seven, eight, I really started to study the speaking industry. I started to write my first book and pick the brain. We brought in some different speakers to speak to our organization. So, you know, we hired John Maxwell and Peter Vidmar and Les Brown and Harvecker and some others. And so I would take them out to lunch and I'd pick their brain and say, how does this work? How did you get started? You know, have this conversation on a regular basis to just try and find my way of, okay, how am I going to go about this? So my first book came out in 2010. And that's when I really kind of launched into the speaking realm.
1: And which book was that? Because I'm looking, you've got, you've got a bunch of them, right? I mean, how? I've written four. Okay. That's a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs>
0: Yeah, so the first book is called The Power of Influence. So that was the first real kind of keynote message that I took out to the world.
1: What came first, the keynote or the book? Um, This is like the new chicken and egg question. This is the new yeah, speaker chicken yeah. and egg.
0: <laughs> it kind of is. So a little bit of both in the fact that I spoke several times and shared a lot of the stories in speaking engagements as i was writing the book but then it got really fine-tuned and defined once the book came out if that makes sense
1: yeah totally i mean just like the chicken and the egg it's hard yeah. to answer that question it's kind yeah. of a little bit of both sometimes but but that's interesting now when you became a speaker author did you get that bug and like go this is awesome i just have to get to my next book and my next book and my next book what was that trans the transition between that because as speakers who become authors, it's always interesting, not as much their
0: first, but their second, their third, their fourth. Like, did you just get on fire with that or what? As I study the speaking industry, and I'm not saying this is the way that has to be for everybody, but for me, the model that seemed to stand out, I do primarily keynote speeches. I speak about 100 times a year. It's very rare that I'm doing longer trainings. It's mostly 45 to 60 minute keynotes. And so the model that seemed to resonate to me was that you write a book and you speak, give a speech by the same title, right? That that book is kind of that platform piece that you can build off of and, and kind of build a brand around because there's obviously exceptions to this, but a lot of those exceptions are the name of the celebrity or you, know, you played in the NBA or there's another reason that you're out there on that stage. And so for me, I knew that coming into this, I recognized that if I wanted to stay relevant long-term, I would probably need to write a book every few years. So I I knew that coming into it. So my first book came out in 2010. My second book didn't come out until 2013. So it was about three years. And then I did a book in 2014 and 2016. And I'm working on my next book now.
1: Gotcha. So you you're milking as much as you can. And I like that you have this product as a platform, a book that is the, the talk and as a model that you had a chance to talk with others to see and kind of pick and choose. So, you know, we talk on one side, which is these practicalities, having a book, having the talk. But if we were to dive into for a few minutes, Beyond that, like if you had some of your most sage advice for speakers, not only just new speakers, but those who have a learning mentality and and they've been doing this for years, but just want to up their game, what are some of the things that you would advise from a practical, tactical speaking aspect of what you do?
0: Yeah, I think for any speaker in whatever realm that is, the two biggest skill sets that stand out to me are storytelling and humor specifically working on those two things. Because if you can tell great stories and if you can make an audience laugh, you can engage them and captivate them around whatever it is that you want to share. My natural skill set is more in storytelling. I wrote a book called The Power of Storytelling. It's something that I teach. It's something that I really enjoy. I believe in it. I work on it, but it's more natural for me. And so, where I've really spent a lot of time in the last couple of years and even hired coaches and and really dove in was in continuing to work on adding humor to my repertoire and being funnier and how I presented ideas and, and information. I mean, that's kind of high level concepts. But I think if you look at it across the board, if you get better in those two areas, you can be very effective.
1: All right. So let's do a crash course in storytelling, and then okay. a crash course in humor. and. You don't have to necessarily be funny with the storytelling, and we'll even let you not be funny with the humor. How's that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Couple thoughts on storytelling. Uh, one, I believe that stories follow a model of struggle to solution. So the way it works in my mind is you hook people with the struggle, then you help them with the solution. I think a lot of times, especially our own stories, we, approach certain stories where we want to come from like a power position. And so we tell solution to solution stories. Like in business, for example, you hear these stories that they kind of sound like, you know what, we're great, and we've always been great, and we'll always be great. And if you work with us, that'd be great, right? I mean, they're (laughs) like, it's, there's just nothing engaging or captivating about it. And so it, it requires a level of vulnerability, it requires a willingness to share some mistakes but then it's struggle to solutions so there's a learning experience that you get from it there's something that comes out of it there's a lesson to be learned from it but i think just from a model standpoint that in and of itself really helps to shape the stories that you tell
1: now uh, just quickly on the authenticity and vulnerability it, you know it's easy to say sometimes it's hard to actually do yeah. when you're talking about authenticity in storytelling are there any things that are maybe underneath the surface, uh, you know, more intricate that are actually tactics to do it? Because is it just as easy as just sharing, okay, this actually happened to me and getting out there? I just think those two words have so much room for interpretation. I love this hook to help, as opposed to solution to solution. But is it just in the story or in the way that you're it or in the details? Like, how do you translate that authenticity to create that engagement?
0: There's several things that come to mind. I'll give you a couple one some people might look at this differently but i think that the more you practice the more you script out the more you role play the more you internalize your stories the more authentic you can tell them now some people would say no 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 it's the opposite you become more robotic but here's the thing i don't think you do those things to memorize i think you do those things to internalize that story needs to become part of you and I promise you, if you're working at it like a craft, the hundredth time you tell that story will be better than the first or second time you tell that story. If you record yourself, if you go back and listen to it, if you watch yourself on video, if you learn how to pause at the right place, like all of those intricate things make a huge difference in how that story is received. So part of it for me is just the prep work. It's just putting in the time to really hone those stories I also think that there's some things you can do to be more conversational in how you speak, which I think feels more authentic. Now, there's difference in speaking styles, but a couple of things that I think you can learn from an authenticity standpoint, for example, instead of just diving into a story, like you know, I could just dive in and go, it was a cold November night. Like that feels so weird to me, just the <laughs> way that some people lead into certain stories. And so what I always like to do is I ask a you focus question on the front end of a story. As an example, we are talking about the power of influence in my speech, the power of influence. I tell a story about when I met Stephen Covey for the first time. He was a mentor of mine. And so when I lead into that story, I say, how many of you have ever read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? And I raise my hand as I do that, which gives an indication to the audience that that's how they should respond. And I get every hand that goes up, right? Right. That creates a commonality for that story to have relevance in their life. So in my mind, you tap into their world with a question, then you bring them into your world with a story. So it makes it feel conversational, Another little technique you can use is where you reinforce relatability. You throw it back on the audience. So there's places in that story where you're going to say, God, "Have you ever felt that before? Don't you hate people like that?" Like or whatever it is. But you're just kind of throwing it back on the audience. But you're, it's like you're having this dialogue, this conversation, this back and forth. Those are techniques that you develop over time, but they also take a lot of practice and rehearsal. But it it sounds funny to say that the more you rehearse, the more authentic you can be because that seems so counterintuitive, right? Right. That you can teach or learn authenticity. But I think that's really the case because the more I know my content and it is part of me, the more I can just be me on stage and I can be authentic and be engaged and present with the audience and allows me to connect better.
1: Yeah. One of the things I, I talk about is, or I've drawn it on a stick figure. You, I draw stick figures daily. Actually, I really like this reinforced relatability. I might have to draw that and, and give you the stick figure credit for it. Nice. But I, I, I say, don't memorize, prepare, and improvise. Cool. Is that kind of what you're saying?
0: Yeah, for sure. Because yeah, you're going to adjust to the audience, but if you know your stuff, then you can improvise, right? You can roll with something somebody asks a question and it takes you in a little bit different direction but you know your content so you can flow with it and come back to it or however it goes it gives you more flexibility than if you were not prepared which i think is what most people push away from and their argument is the exact opposite but i just don't think it's true
1: gotcha i like that all right you've heard it here first to be more authentic practice your (laughs) stories. (laughs) But it is funny. I mean, there are counterintuitive things that you you wouldn't think. And I think that's really what can make a huge difference because there's this idea of authenticity that it's kind of off the cuff and that there's this like, wow, I'm actually hearing this story and, and how it comes out. But the more crafted you are in that delivery from your gestures, to your movements, to the tone, to the pauses, to the place you are on the stage... Like, that's when it just gets meta, and that's when Obi Wan comes out, and you really can defeat the dark force with your words.
0: Well, I'll give you an example of where this stands out to me. So, I wrote The Power of Influence in 2010. I've given that keynote, I don't know, like a couple thousand times, probably. I wrote my book, Partnership is the New Leadership, in 2016. So, right after Partnership is the New Leadership came out, this group hired me, and they had me do a keynote on The Power of Influence, and then a couple hours later, do another keynote on partnership as a new leadership. I've given the power of influence thousands more times, right? To yeah. be honest with you, I think the content for partnership as a new leadership is better. But the amount of laughs I got comparatively, I got so much more in the power of influence. I got so much more engagement, interaction. Not because of the content, it's because of my delivery. It's just I've just mm. done it more times and so I know all the little places to make them laugh. I know how to to insert humor I know where to pause like it just flows better because of the practice and now fast forward a couple years and partnership is just that much better because of how I've delivered it and I've figured out how to do it
1: I like it. This is a great transition into our mini course in humor. Because mm-hmm. if you were just taking those two talks alone, let's just assume that the content was exactly even from a value standpoint. The delivery was perfect, uh, perfectly even statistically speaking. But it sounds like a huge determining factor. It, it just to size up the fact that people laughed more sounds like it just made for an overall better
0: experience. For sure. couple of thoughts when it comes to humor. One, There's a great book called The Comedy Bible that Judy Carter wrote. It lays out a lot of formulas for comedy. I would highly recommend it because there's comedic formulas that you can go through, like the rule of three, where you say something small, something small, and then something big, and because that third one throws it off, it's kind of funny in the way that you deliver it. Like if you learn some of those formulas, it starts to help. But I think the biggest piece for me is that you don't insert humor, you uncover humor. Humor's there. There's certain places that humor is funny. So as an example, just take your last speech, record it. The next time you give a speech, record it, go back through, listen to it with a different lens and even invite some friends into it with the idea of where is a place that I could add just a funny line or like bring out maybe more dialogue of a character that would be funny in this story, or there's places in your speech that you could just add a little piece or uncover something that's there and it could be funny, but you're just not taking advantage of it. I think it's there all the time. And so again, it just takes the work to kind of dive in deep into some of those things and start to find it. The other thing that I do, I watch comedians constantly, just pull up Netflix and just pull up any comedian. There's tons of programs out there but for me, I'm watching and I'm analyzing what they're doing, not to copy their content or their jokes or anything, but just like interesting how he's built up this story and then had this huge punchline. Like just watching the comedic timing and watching the setup and the punchline, the delivery, and some use way more big gestures and they're more body type humor with posture and the the way that they move. And some people it's just quick one liners and some people it's more story format and, and trying to find, you know, that comedic voice. But for me, I think it also keeps it at the forefront of my mind as I I watch comedians to really kind of study that as a craft.
1: Yeah. Have you ever met, or do you know, David Nihill, N-I-H-I-L-L? I I don't think I do. Nope. So I just met him. I was speaking in Boston. He put on a workshop. He's got a a book about, um, you know, comedy habits to become a better and funnier public speaker. And a lot of this stuff very much is resonating with me. And just like what you said, you're sort of seeking and analyzing just because of this new awareness I have of it. I am now looking and doing exactly that without thinking about it. So like when I find myself laughing, I'm like, wait, wait, what was funny about that? And I'll actually go back and rewind like a couple minutes and look for the setup. It's almost just like having that awareness of it. You start to see it, but when, when you don't look for it, you laugh and you don't really think about it. So it's an interesting concept that that you're actively watching, seeking, trying, and finding.
0: <laughs> I'll have to check out David Nehill. I don't know him, but um, funny story. I went with a group of speakers to we kind of went to this comedy workshop thing in Vegas and they sent us out that night to everybody go to a comedy show and and watch right we kind of analyze so i'm there with another speaker and we end up like right up front and she pulls out a notepad to start to take notes because this was <laughs> the assignment and the comedian Just had a heyday with her. Like, just like, what are you doing? Stealing my material and just went off. It was hilarious. But yeah, I think it's a good thing to start to watch and analyze that way.
1: Yeah, interesting. Now, when it comes to humor, just as a disclaimer, there's probably a way to go too far, a way to say too much, a way that you're going to offend somebody, right? Like that thin line between being annoying and funny and whatnot. Any guidance on things to absolutely avoid or stories of lessons learned so that we don't have to repeat?
0: Well, I think for me, I speak mostly to corporate audiences. So it's also my style and my brand that I'm pretty tame. Like I don't use foul language. I'm not going to be a risk for that corporation. And they kind of know that going into it. I think if there's ever any question, I'll ask certain, you know, like the event group before, like, are there certain things to avoid? Are there, if I notice things that I think are funny you know, as you're sitting in the room before, like maybe you can see something that would be a funny opening that you can do a callback to something that happened earlier. I'll usually run it by somebody to just to make sure it's okay, you know, in the moment, or if I'm going to poke fun at somebody who's there, you know, is that executive open to that or that kind of thing. So I think it's always good to check before, unless it's like your brand and your style, right? Because I just think there has to be consistency. If you go to my website and you look at my videos and you talk to me and we book the speech, you know what you're getting. The same way as like if I go to look up Gary Vaynerchuk and I see what he is, I'm not surprised when he drops the F-bomb on my stage because that's who he is, right? So I think there just needs to be transparency and consistency with it. I dig it. All right. So there we have our mini crash course
1: in humor as well as storytelling And I think the combination between the two is something that is valuable because I think I forget who actually said it, but it's that, you know, if you can get people to laugh, you can get them to learn. And there's really something that I think builds trust when you create laughter. And I think that especially in the corporate environments, there's such a need for things to be fun. Like if you're in an all day workshop seminar conference, like it can be sleep medicine, right? So it's like getting people engaged and laughing, I think, is something that is highly valuable. And
0: when you put it into a story sandwich, why not? Yeah, I agree. It makes a big difference for sure. You become much more memorable, much more engaging, and therefore people get more out of it. Yeah,
1: less boring. So let's talk about how you find yourself on more stages more often, you know, into somewhat of the speaking side, or the business side of speaking, forgive me. But are there any tips that you have for our listeners? I know that it sounds like your speaking was initially an offshoot of the business, then you got the book to create the platform for the business, but any words of wisdom, imagine that you're running next to a speaker who's about to head up a hill on their final run as they're trying to get more stage time, and uh, you are their proverbial dad, and you, in the middle of running, give them some motivational tips and tricks to attack that hill.
0: Yeah. So I don't think it's just one thing. And I think that's one of the issues that a lot of speakers have is like, what's the one thing you're doing that's working? And, and my answer would be like, well, it's the 14 things that we're doing <laughs> that are working. I think in any real business, if you treat it casually, you become a casualty of that business. Ooh, that's. Cute. It's hard to take this, you know, as a hobby and get a lot of stage time and do more with it. And that doesn't mean that you have to be doing this full time. That just means you have to be engaged and you have to look at it that way and be strategic and market yourself. So, you know, there's a bunch of things that we do that get me booked f- with different groups.
1: So I actually just started writing this down. Like right? I'm, I'm in the comedy show in the front row here and I've got my big yellow mm-hmm. post-it. you said 14, so I'm going to pull 14 things out of you. We've got three so far.
0: (laughs) Okay. Okay. I I don't know that I'll get to 14. It was just an arbitrary number I threw out, but we could get there. We'll see.
1: I know. I know. But it was great. It just sounded so good. Like, all right, you're right. It's not one. It's 14. So number one is that if you treat it casually, you will become a casualty. Number two, be engaged. Number three, you have to be strategic. And I'll even give you the number four is you have to market yourself. Okay.
0: Yeah, you're, you're on a roll. Let's talk about different ways that you market yourself. So, I am constantly networking with people, with friends, with people who are connected to organizations and reaching out to them very directly in many cases and saying, Hey, you work at this company. Do you guys ever bring in outside speakers? I'd love to connect and give them my information, right? So, just specifically reaching out to networks of people that you know. Two, we are trying to leverage every speech that i have and in multiple ways i'll give you like a bunch of different ways if you can get any kind of video from any speech that you give you can repurpose that use it to book more speeches that's a great way if you can get testimonials from the people who hire you you can use those in your marketing efforts if you can get good pictures that you can share via social media, etc., that you people see you're out speaking and therefore you can promote what you're doing, that's another way you can leverage that speech. If you can strategically invite other people who could possibly hire you to speak to see you speak at that event, that's a great way to leverage that event. So we try and showcase every speech that I have where I will invite potential clients who may be in that city or bureaus that work in that city. And sometimes it's not even that they come and they show up, but the simple fact that we're reaching out and they hear that I am being booked and busy, that in and of itself is marketing. It's better if they see me speak, but if they hear, you know what? Oh, wow, Ty's in our city, he's speaking. Next time we think about who we're going to hire, maybe I'm top of mind, right? So we're doing that on a regular basis, we do a lot of work with speakers bureaus so developing relationships there and booking a lot of speeches through them we're constantly trying to continue to develop those relationships we try and keep ongoing relationships with clients by reaching out and adding value on a regular basis and specifically going back as i come out with like a new book so for example when the power of influence came out i spoke to you know a couple hundred people before The Power of Storytelling came out, so when The Power of Storytelling came out, we would go back to those same clients and say, hey, Ty has a new book, this is a new topic, we'd love to come back and share this information with your sales team or with your leadership team or whatever the case was from that standpoint. At any speech that you're actually giving, I would try and seed in the idea that you speak for other people. So as an example, you might share a story that just the lead into that story is, You know, I speak for a lot of different organizations. And recently I was speaking at GE, right? Just saying that little line puts in the mind of everyone in the audience, oh, we should hire him for our event, right? This is what he does or what she does. So I don't know how many we're at now. Are you making a list? That was actually, you want to know legitimately, that was number 14. I was about to stop you. That's it. (laughs) Like, there we go. go.
1: So here's a high level recap for people. And this is, you know, we're, we're blasting through this, but maybe if one of these stick out, then we can do a little deeper dive, but we literally just got your 14. So number one, if you treat the business as casual, you will be a casualty. Number two, you have to be engaged. And I'm going to add, you have to be an engaged storyteller who is funny. I'm just adding that there because we don't want to get more than 14. You've got to be strategic. You have to market yourself. You have to constantly network. You have to leverage every speech. You have to repurpose videos. You have to collect testimonials. You have to take pictures to prove that you were there. You have to invite potential clients, customers, or bureaus to your talks. You have to be booked and seen as busy. You have to work the speaker bureaus. You have to keep ongoing value and stay in front of them with your new content and Finally, number 14, you've got to seed the idea that you speak for others. Think of it as a ninja name job. Hey, that's a good list. I like it. It is. That's probably your sixth book. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Fourteen habits of highly successful
0: (laughs) speakers. Perfect. Talk about a brand halo there. I already bought the domain, so we're going (laughs) to (laughs) go.
1: No, I, I think the main point of the fact that there's not just one thing so crucial because I get that question all the time too. You know, people send a DM, they'll be like, Hey, I've been following you. I love your work. And it sounds like you're speaking a lot. Can you just tell me how to become a professional speaker? It's like, well, (laughs) I have 14 different things to talk about, right?
0: Yeah. You're like, I can, but you need to listen to the last 32 podcasts, right? I mean, that's the (laughs) truth of it. To get started, you don't need to do all those things right at once. You need to grab a few. Like the honest truth is you need to have an idea of what is you speak on, who you speak for. You probably need a video or website, something you can show people. And then you need to start calling all the people you know. Just start there, right? And say, hey, this is something I'm doing. I'd love to share this message. And just start getting stage time, get in front of people. And I always tell speakers that you're going to be told that you're good. People are going to tell you good job, mostly because they are glad they're not standing on that stage and you were. Um, (laughs) But that doesn't mean anything. When people see you speak and they start hiring you, that's when you're actually good. Hmm. Like when people see you and it turns into other speeches, and here's the truth, long term for this to work, you have to get to the point where the majority of your speeches are coming from other speeches. Because to go and find 100 new stages to speak on every year, that would be a tough deal for my team. That's not an easy thing. But when 40 or 50 of them come just because somebody calls us out of the blue and says, hey, we saw Ty speak at this event or we had him two years ago and we want to have him back or whatever, then it becomes kind of that snowball effect, right?
1: Yeah, it totally does. And the other thing too is I'll have a middle ground, right? So people are like, yeah, that was good. or yeah, That was amazing. And then you don't hear anything. Then mm-hmm. like, later on you'll get, Oh my gosh, that was amazing. I'd love to have you actually come speak in my company. And then you get a card or they take your card and then they don't call you. (laughs) And then later on you get better. And then people actually ask you for your info and then they get it and they call. So like, I find that there's this transitional period where people will come up and say, not only you're good, but that they want to hire you, but then they don't hire you. Like still, that's a step in that process. Right.
0: For sure. It's a step in the right direction. And the honest truth is some of them may not be the decision makers, So they're going to pass your name along and, or it's, they're part of a committee. And so your name gets thrown in the hat. And I've had people who have hired me and they're like, I'm like, where did you see me? Or they reach out and they're like, well, we've been pushing your name for the last six years. And you know, this year was the year that it worked. Wow, Some of it's timing. That's the hard part about speeches is I could call your company today, but you may not be hiring a speaker for another eight months or a year or two years. And so it's just part of it's just getting your name out there and and trying to stay top of mind for a lot of people. Yeah. Now,
1: you know, there's a lot of buzzy brandiness around personal brands. I kind of assume that everyone has a personal brand. If they don't think that they do, they're just really not taking control of the the narrative arc in their own story. Yeah. But Is there anything in particular that a speaker would need to do or some things that you see speakers doing from a personal branding perspective that either impresses you or stands out or that you're like, wow, I really like how that person is, is doing blank to help really focus on them as a person outside of their company.
0: Well, I think more and more the two mediums that I think are getting the most play are are video and podcasts. And so being involved in those two things in whatever form or fashion that is, I would highly recommend. I guess I can just speak from my perspective of what we do. I, I host a podcast myself. Uh, it's called the Relevant Leadership Podcast, and I do interviews. I also share some podcasts that are just my content and some that are like more story based, just cool people that I've met in different areas. I'm on a lot of podcasts like this conversation we're having. Video wise, we put out a weekly video on Monday mornings. I call it a Monday morning mantra. So, if anybody's connected to me on any social media platform, you see those. And then we put out other video of me speaking at different events or of content ideas that we're sharing. I think those two platforms are huge. You know, and they'll probably be down the line other platforms that gain momentum and speed, but it's just a way of being out there, adding value. And, and I think as a speaker, part of it's a balance of, yes, your content, but also who you are. As a person, like I'm, I'm a father of four kids. So you know, if you follow me on social media or even in my speeches, I bring my kids into it at different times and bring up different things. My eight-year-old son Drew just has gotten really into American Ninja Warrior. If you've seen the show, they do competitions and stuff, and he qual-
1: yeah, rightly so. I, I'm an American Ninja and I am a warrior, so I'm a fan. Yeah,
0: nice. <laughs> so Drew just qualified for nationals, which is in Minneapolis this summer. And just like that, sharing that and sharing some of his videos and those kind of things like that comes up daily with different people I run into just because it's like something kind of cool and different and unique and it's fun to see what's going on and people are curious about it. And and so I do think there's a balance of sharing both your content and who you are as a person that, you know, people need to connect with you.
1: Right. Because if you, if all day, every day was a, a video or a thought or a moment or a podcast, 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 podcast. It sounds like a broken record cast. And it basically is making you more of a machine than a human that they really want to see up on stage.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, everybody's going to find their balance in what that looks like. But yeah, I think that's important for all of us to find.
1: Excellent. Well. We have not only covered 14 necessary items to build into the one thing that you think you need to do. We've talked about the value of humor with some book references and some systems that you can leverage and not forgetting to start to be a bit more inquisitive about what actually makes you laugh. Then backed up into the storytelling, and really just about authenticity coming through, practicing as much as you possibly can, <laughs> which, again, is the is the best kind of counter to advice—the stuff that's right there in front of you—and then all the way back to essentially whatever hill it is that you are facing there's a good chance that you're already winded. There's a good chance that there's somebody in front of you. And there's a good chance that there's somebody who's not only cheering you on, but would want to jump in the race and give you that last little push. So, Ty, this has been a lot of fun. And uh, I feel like we've sort of tied this all together. Not that you ever have heard that pun before. But (laughs) the next time that uh, I'm on a slightly inclined hill with people in front of me, I'm going to remember this. And the next time that I think I'm funny, I'm going to remember this. And the next time I need a list, I'll probably go for the 14, because for some reason now, that's like just so cool.
0: Well, I appreciate you uh, recapping it, bringing it together. Fun conversation. Thanks for having me.
1: And if somebody wants to check out you and your plethora of books, where's the best way for them to find you if we were going to point them in that direction?
0: My website's tybennett.com, and we actually set up a specific page for your listeners at tybennett.com forward slash world and uh, they can go on there, and get some free stuff and uh, take a look at everything there.
1: Awesome. All right, well, very cool. So if you like this episode, which I'm sure you do if you're listening, definitely give Ty a follow, a like, a mention, tweet us up, share this podcast far and wide so you can help everybody else in this world of speakers be better speakers. Ty, thank you so much and uh, good luck. Hopefully we'll share the stage sometime.
0: Thank you, I look forward to it.
1: All right, take care.